Thanks for downloading Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan. Today is a continuation of the fascinating conversation we had with Country Music Hall of Fame star Bill Anderson. Let's jump right in. Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan features two radio professionals with over a hundred years of broadcasting experience between them. Dave Hogan and Randy Houston are both native Western North Carolinians whose rich voices have been heard in every glade, cove, and holler of Western North Carolina and East Tennessee, primarily on AM radio. And between the two of them, they've worked in just about every radio format. As you can imagine, these guys have tons of stories about the day-to-day of live radio and the interactions they've had with listeners and entertainers while they were immersed in, at the time, one of the most influential and informative mediums available. Those experiences will be featured in this podcast series. Check the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts with Randy and Dave on Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan. Welcome to Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan. Randy Houston on board with you. And this is Dave Hogan, and we were... Able to convince Bill Anderson, Whispering Bill, to stay with us for another segment. I'm so glad you did, Dave, because uh, the first episode of a couple of weeks ago was fascinating, and and you only just scratched the surface. So, welcome our guest back on board, uh, Bill Anderson. And and in, in the last um, podcast, we talked about City Lights, 19 years old, writing that song. Uh, while you were on the roof of the uh, hotel in Commerce, Georgia. And uh, Ray Price recorded it. How did Ray get hold of that song? Ray heard it on the radio. Actually, I recorded the song first mm-hmm. on a label out of Texas called TNT Records. And I sent my record to Nashville to be reviewed by a music publication called the Country Music Reporter. They reviewed records, and I thought, well, shoot, I'll see if maybe they'll say something nice about my little record. And I sent it up there, and a man named Charlie Lamb ran the Country Music Reporter, and he listened to it and was quite taken with the song City Lights. And he took it over to to Chet Atkins, who at that time was the head of all the recording being done at RCA Victor. And Chet was producing an artist named Dave Rich, a uh, young stylist from up in Kentucky who was uh, was very unique, and they were trying to get a hit record with Dave Rich. And so Chet liked City Lights, and so he recorded it with Dave Rich. And Ray Price heard the Dave Rich record on the radio one day when he was riding to the golf course with Ernest Tubb. And Ernest kept telling Ray, said, son, you ought to record that song. And finally he did. Well, that's, uh, as, you, as, as we say, the rest is history. Your career took off from there. You had hits like uh, Still, Mama Sang a Song, The Tip. Did you write it, The Tip of My Fingers or The Tips of My Fingers? I've seen it both ways. Sooner or later. <laughs> I get off that all the time. I wrote it as The Tip of My Fingers, and that's the way I recorded it to start with. But then Roy Clark came along and recorded it, and I don't know if he had more fingers than me or what. But <laughs> the Tips of My Fingers. Eddie Arnold recorded it. He went back to The Tip of My Fingers. And then Gene Shepard and Steve Warner recorded it. They sang the tips of my fingers. I finally have about decided I think maybe tips of my fingers is correct. Uh, And that's the way I've been doing it in recent years. Now, I'm going to guess that this, this is purely a guess, that that song, the tips of my fingers, 
has made you more money than anything you ever wrote. Is that right? How close am I? Well, I think when you look at it worldwide, uh, you're probably right. It has probably been the biggest worldwide copyright I've had. And I'll explain that a little bit. The song has not only been a hit in the United States and Canada in the English language. I mean, it's been a chart record and a number one record five different times for me and Roy Clark and Eddie Arnold, wow. Gene Schiffer and Steve Warner. And I, uh, I played a version by uh, Dean Martin one time. Yeah, Dean Martin did it in an album, and a lot of people have done it in albums. And then worldwide, it has been translated into I don't know how many different languages. I've got copies of it and everything from French and German to Swahili, I think. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so worldwide, and it's been recorded as an instrumental. It's been recorded, you know, it's it's been used in in commercials and various things. So worldwide and, and, and over the years, of course, it goes all the way back to 1960. So it's had a pretty long shelf life. And I keep hoping somebody, one of these new artists today will do it again and take it up the charts again. It's, it's been awful good to me. I remember reading in your autobiography, and it's been a lo- uh, quite a long while, so I'm, I may not remember this correctly, but you you compared the number of radio plays that the song got originally to the number of radio plays that Steve Warner had when he put it out. And one of the ways that a songwriter's paid is through royalties from radio stations when they pay their BMI fees. And if you've ever been a GJ, you know, you keep those BMI logs occasionally. (laughs) And you, um, you made a comparison between the number of radio stations that played Tip of My Fingers originally and the number of radio stations that played it uh, when Steve Warner recorded it. Well, when I recorded it in 1960, there were about 80 full-time country music radio stations in America. And by the time Steve got to it, there were over 3,000. Wow. So do the arithmetic. I mean, when there's 80 stations playing it in 1960, and there's 3,500 or so playing it in uh, 1992, <laughs> doesn't take you long to figure that out. Uh, uh, Tom T. Hall had the, had the greatest quote on that back when Alan Jackson recorded one of his songs. Tom T. said that back in the, in the early days, he said if you had a hit song, you might make enough money to buy a new car. And he said he found out after Alan Jackson recorded one of his old songs, he said, nowadays if they record it, you can buy the whole dealership. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How has uh, the Internet affected uh, songwriters' royalties and and the way you're paid? Because so many songs can be downloaded and played for free, whereas 20 years ago, I would have bought a CD of uh, Someday uh, It'll All Make Sense. Uh, uh, 40 years ago, I would have bought a 45 RPM record, but now you just pull it up and listen to it for, for free if you want to on the Internet. Has that affected uh, the pay that songwriters and artists uh, get these days? Well, it's a double-edged sword, Dave, really, because um, 
more and more people are hearing your songs. I mean, instead of thousands of people, there's millions of people hearing your songs today. Unfortunately, when streaming came along, I mean, this was a new thing, and the copyright laws were dated 1909. I mean, we were still being paid under some archaic uh, copyright laws and a whole lot of litigation and legal squabbling and arguing and fussing back and forth has uh, has resulted in in some better rates in the beginning i mean this whole thing kind of snuck up on us and here we have millions of people listening to our music and we're thinking wow we're gonna we're gonna make a lot of money off of this you'd see a statement and have a million two hundred thousand plays and you'd be paid forty five dollars <laughs> I mean, like you know like nothing and um, so fortunately, some people have gone to work and they've leveled the playing field a little bit, but it, it is in no way, I think, and of course I'm prejudiced because I'm a songwriter, I don't think it is quite the level field that it needs to be quite yet, but they're moving in that direction and I guess that's a good start. You, uh, as I said earlier, wrote most of the songs as a solo writer early in the career the songs that we've mentioned, plus I Love You Drops, I Get the Fever, the duets with Jan Howard and Mary Lou Turner. And then you had kind of a dry spell as far as your writing is concerned, and that's understandable. Uh, but later on, you, in the 90s, I guess, started co-writing with some of the younger artists. <laughs> Yeah, and that opened up a whole new world for me. I, I had kind of gotten off track in the 80s, and the music was changing in the early 80s. It was getting a little more pop-influenced, and I had some other things I was able to do. I went out to California and started hosting a bunch of game shows and appearing on television soap operas and uh, game shows on the Nashville Network when I came back to to Tennessee, and I kind of got off in another direction. I was running around the country selling fried chicken for a restaurant chain called Po Folks, uh, which nearly made Po Folks out of me, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> I really kind of got away from songwriting, and then when Steve Warner came along and cut tips of my fingers, as we were talking about earlier, I realized, you know, number one, I realized how much I had missed songwriting and the thrill of hearing a song of mine on the radio. And then I looked around and I realized most everybody in those days was, was co-writing. They were writing two or three people to get together and write a song. And I thought, I'm not sure I can do that. Write a song, you know, make an appointment and sit down with somebody and write a song. But I got with this young guy you might have heard of named Vince Gill. Yes. Tell <laughs> us the hair, hairstylist story. Can you yeah. tell us that story? Uh, Vince and I wrote a couple of songs together after our uh, our mutual hairstylist uh, convinced us we needed to get together and write. And so it opened up the world of co-writing to me, and that's mostly what I've done over the, the past 20-plus uh, years, almost 30 years now. And I enjoy co-writing. I still write by myself. Uh, I get certain ideas that I just feel like I just don't want to share with anybody, and I write them by myself like the song we talked about last time called Until the Light Comes On Again. Some of those kinds of songs are very personal, and I don't want to write them with other people. But I really enjoy co-writing. It's a fun process. I've uh, I've had some pretty good luck writing songs like Whiskey Lullaby with John Randall and Give It Away with 
Betty Cannon and Jamie Johnson, and those have both been songs of the year. So it's uh, it's been a, a new chapter in my life and in my career, but a very enjoyable one. Who's responsible for, I think, one of the great lines in country music? He put the bottle to his head and pulled the trigger. <laughs> what a line. Well, yeah, that's what I said the first time I heard it, too. Uh, John Randall sang that line to me, and I credited him with having written it. But actually, he said that uh, he had been going through a pretty tough time in his life, and I think he had gone off and kind of crashed at a buddy's house and and kind of retired from humanity for a couple of weeks. And when he kind of decided to sober up and come back and join the human race again. He was apologizing to his friend. He said, man, I'm sorry for crashing and uh, all the, uh, the the confusion and tumult that I've tumult that I've brought into to your life. And the, and the guy who John has been living with and staying with actually said to him, that's okay, John. I've put the bottle to my head and pulled the trigger a few times myself. Wow. So John Randall, either one can take credit for coming up with that line. It was John's Betty. Uh, and, and John asked him, I think, the way I understand it, he asked him, you know, do you want credit, you know, for that line in the song? And, uh, and the guy refused to take credit. Another story I remember from uh, your autobiography, which, by the way, is still available. I checked before we came in this morning. And uh, it's still available for purchase on uh, Amazon. Good. Um, a story about the the Swift family from up in Pennsylvania, Scott Swift, and I believe it was his mom who was a big fan of yours. Uh, take it from there and tell us that story. Well, Scott Swift uh, was a, a stockbroker. He worked for one of the big uh, brokerage firms in Reading, Pennsylvania. And he was a big country music fan, and he was especially a big fan of, of mine. And whenever we would play up in that area, which was quite often back in those days, he would always come to our shows. He told me stories of, of helping my band members unload the equipment off the bus and take it into the auditoriums and set it up and stuff. I mean, he was a he was a real fan. Well, Scott, uh, as we all did, grew a little older, and they got married and had his own family. And he had a little 13-year-old daughter, and he came to me and said, I've, uh, I've moved to Nashville, and my little 14-year-old daughter uh, wants to write songs and sing and get in the music business. Can you help her? And I thought, what in the world could I do to help a 14-year-old? I, I certainly couldn't write a song with her. We, we wouldn't be coming from the same world at all. And I said, well, Scott, I, I wish her a lot of luck. I, I'm doing a little show for some of my fans during a country music fanfare here in a few weeks. If your daughter wants to come out and get up and sing a couple of songs, we'll be glad to have her. So they came out and ate dinner with us. And uh, his little daughter got up with her big guitar and she sang a couple of songs and, and got some uh, kind of polite applause. My fans didn't quite understand what she was all about, but, uh, in later uh, days and months and years, a lot of people have understood what his little 14-year-old daughter was all about because her name was Taylor Swift. And uh, she has... <laughs> she's <been> <laughs> <laughs> well, were, were you tempted to do for Taylor Swift what you did for Connie Smith? 
Well, no, not really at the time, because number one, Taylor Swift was very different. I understood Connie Smith. Yeah. I could understand. The, I mean, she was a country singer in the, the Loretta Lynn, uh, Dolly Parton, you know, uh, Kitty Wells, you know, that, that traditional country thing that I could understand. And Taylor was doing different kinds of stuff, much more pop oriented, much younger type music. And by this time, I, I didn't really have the time to devote to, to trying to help somebody else. I was still trying to, you know, make records and write songs and see what I could do for a guy named Bill Anderson. But uh, in retrospect, Scott Swift said to me, her dad said to me, come over to the house and, and you and Taylor write some songs. And uh, the biggest mistake I made was not going over there. <laughs> 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 that little 14-year-old girl. <laughs> Bill, before we run out of time, uh you mentioned your TV work earlier, and you're still seen on TV uh, quite often. Tell us about Country Road TV. Well, I look better on radio, but I have been on TV a lot over the years. Uh, Country Road TV has kind of uh, evolved from what started out as Gabriel Productions, and we started doing a television show back in the 90s called Country's Family Reunion. And they asked me, uh, Larry Black, who was the head of Gabriel, asked me to host this uh, kind of a country music version of what Bill Gaither was doing with the gospel music, with the Bill Gaither homecomings. And we did Country's Family Reunion for 23 years. Started out on the Nashville Network, and when that went away, we ended up on the RFD Network and took country music into a whole lot of places. It was a it was a fun time in my life. We. We made a lot of good music, and I told Larry when it was over, I said, we started out making music, we ended up making history, because some of those old shows are, are pretty valuable now. <laughs> well, Bill, am I correct that you're the longest tenured member of the Grand Ole Opry now? Yeah, I'm not the oldest member. Uh, I've had two or three people try to, tell me that I'm the oldest, but I'm not. Jesse McReynolds, Bobby Osborne, there are people there that are older than I am. But I have been on the show for consecutive years longer than anybody. I joined the Opry in June of 1961, so I'm actually working on my, uh, what, my 62nd year, I guess, as an Opry member. Uh, nobody has been there as long as I have, and I don't think that anybody has ever been on the Opry for 62 consecutive years. Bill, uh, this is Randy, and we've got to wrap things up. I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed sitting here listening to you two guys, and uh, we just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. We know you still uh, got things going on, and uh, we're we're lucky to be included in your schedule, and we're going to be talking to uh, a lot of our listeners on Hot Mike with Houston and Hogan with Bill Anderson Thank you so much, Bill, and uh, keep in touch. Well, I appreciate it, Randy. Thank you. You've been too quiet. You've got a great voice. You should have spoken up more. Hey, uh, as soon as we get off the air, he'll talk. Randy will jump me because I hogged the microphone. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Thank you, Thank you both. Thank you very much. I enjoyed this. Thank you all very much for listening. Thank you, Bill. Guys, thank you very much. Be sure to click the subscribe button for another episode of Hot Mike with Randy Houston and Dave Hogan.